You are listening to the First Baptist Church Broken Arrow podcast. To learn more about the church, visit us at fbcva.org. Today's sermon comes from our pastor, Dr. Matt Brooks. Startup, small start, big impact. Well, good morning, church. If you would, open your Bibles and be in the book of Acts this morning, Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, as we excitedly start week 2 of an 11-week series on the first six chapters of the book of Acts. I don't know about you, but I'm ready to hear the word of the Lord. Can we give a round of applause to our choir, praise teams? Wow. Praise the Lord. I think before we study the text this morning, why don't we ask the Lord to continue to bless our time together Ask the Holy Spirit now to instruct us as we study first things first this morning from this early church in Acts 1. Our Father God, we come to you, Lord, just full, full of grace and wonder. Father, excited. Father, thank you for these truths that we just sang. Thank you, Father, for the risen Christ in which we stand. Father, as we now study this text, Holy Spirit, come and ignite and flame within our heart a passion for this text to emulate our brothers and sisters in Christ and allow them to keep first things first. And God, how they change the world. Father, as we reach bay and beyond, Father, just take this text, use it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are in a series on the first six weeks of, our first six chapters of Acts called Start Up, Small Start, Big Impact. Just want to remind you that if you're walking along this series with us devotionally, that our content team has put together a sermon-aligned curriculum that will help you just expand and extend the work that the Lord is doing in your heart. You can text START to 45776 as we now enter into the narrative section of Acts chapter 1 and beginning to study what it was this first church devoted themselves to. It was the great Hall of Fame coach Vince Lombardi who would every single year would gather his team together. And as they began to kind of embark on a championship season, he would literally start preseason camp the exact same way. He would grab a football and he would say, men, this is a football. Uh, Apparently one year after doing this, year after year after year, a lineman, it's always the lineman out of nowhere, said, hey coach, what was that again? Can you slow down? The point is, is that if we're truly going to accomplish as a team everything we desire to, we must devote ourselves to these first things, blocking, tackling, and technique, and all of these sorts of things. In like manner, we find that in Acts chapter 1, verses 20 and 26, that it was the Lord's church that began to devote themselves, even at this stage of infancy, to the things that mattered most, that they gave themselves expectantly to prayer, that they wanted to follow God's word, that they sought wise counsel, that they took a step of faith. And the world has never been the same since. And so it's within this historic document of Acts that we find and have an absolute awe-inspiring wonder the absolute magnitude of the Spirit of God in and through our lives. Acts is the second volume of Luke, the renowned historian. He focuses on the continued, ongoing kingdom work of Christ through his spirit-enabled followers. Acts is 28 chapters, 1,003 verses, and has no parallel in regard to content in the entire New Testament. Luke chronologically encapsulates the first 30 years of the life of Christ's church. He gives his first major section of Acts to covering now how the spirit-led activity of these common people would do uncommon things all throughout Jerusalem. 
The point is, is that nothing can thwart God's plan. As God's divine guidance and control over all events is a main theme in the book of Luke and Acts. Jesus reigns at all times, and he provides direction to us at any time as his people. And so now following the resurrection of Christ, following the commission of his disciples to be a witness for him, one soul at a time in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, Jesus has ascended to the Father, and now Jesus' ascension not only authorizes or endorses Jesus' work, but it also continues his work in and through his people. And so Jesus, as he promises his followers, that the Holy Spirit will come. He will sufficiently and intentionally equip and empower them to fulfill mission in their lives. They give themselves to these first things. And so Luke breaks this down in three primary sections in verses 12 through 26. First of all, he reminds us of how they were united around prayer. That they were devoted specifically to a characteristic, a way of life of prayer. Secondly, he then is going to describe to us in verses 15 through 20 the demise and betrayal of Judas. One of the disciples of Jesus who tragically betrayed him. We'll talk about that in a minute. He is then going to end this section with the process of how they began to replace Judas to fulfill the mission God has given their church. And the one thing that I want us to get as we walk out of here and do life is that we must keep first things first. Well, what does that look like? Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. And your Bible says this in verse 12. And then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, in a Sabbath day journey away from where they were. And when they had entered, they went up to the, inner, the upper room where they were staying, and Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All of these men were with one accord. They were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now, after the ascension, Jesus' apostles who were given to the church, who were called by God through Christ to this mission, notice they were not idle. They notice they were in perfect alignment to the command that Jesus had given them in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. That in order for them to go in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, they were first to wait in Jerusalem. In fact, Luke gives us a specific sphere here of where they were, around 2,000 cubits away, for they were near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. You see, these men were in complete alignment, not just to the commission of Christ, but according to the Mishnah, which is a Jewish historical document, you could not on the Sabbath travel no more than two-thirds or three-fourths of a mile away, which means then two things. One, the ascension obviously took place upon the Sabbath. These men also were wanting to, even in the small details of their life for Christ, were wanting to follow exactly what he asked them to do. And so they went up to the upper room, the Bible says in verse 13, for they were saying that these disciples were unwaveringly unified, they were convinced that they were going to receive and fulfill the promise that Christ had given them. There was no doubt. There was no hesitation. Now, the interesting thing is we actually don't know where this specific upper room was. Now, some contend that this is the exact place where they had shared the Passover meal with Jesus and where he'd instituted the Lord's Supper in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 and 28. 
Additionally, it may have been the room where Jesus had appeared to some of these disciples on that first Easter in Luke chapter 24, verses 33 and 36. A less likely option, maybe this was the house of John Mark's mom. Regardless, this house was rather large, for it can accommodate approximately 120 people. You see, houses in ancient times usually had a third floor that was reserved for dining and places of study. They would even sublet this to other families as a means of supplemental income. They would occasionally, specifically during football season, would, would use it as kind of a man cave and have all of these cool... Just making sure you're still listening to me, yeah. <laughs> but obviously this was a large house in Jerusalem where they accommodated. Now, the list of the disciples given in Acts chapter 1, verse 13, is similar but not identical to the list that Luke gives in Luke chapter 6, verses 13 and 16. Although he admits Judas Iscariot for obvious reasons, the point is, is that these men were strong-willed. They were fallible. They were common men with an uncommon calling. And I want to give specific attention to one. Look at verse 13. And Peter. You see Peter here? He's always at the first of every list of the disciples given in the Gospels. You see, previously, in Luke chapter 22, verses 54 through 62, Peter had denied Christ not once, not twice, but three times. An act which could potentially have discredited him irreversibly in the disciples' eyes. But it was the grace of God seen through Jesus' multiple personal appearances to Peter that ensured his position among leadership to these disciples. And I put all of that to point out is that God's grace is truly sufficient. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9. That all of us fall short of his glory. That all of us will have, have times of, of flippant rebellion or blatant rebellion. All of us will do too much in regard to God's law in earning his favor. All of us will do too little in regard to obedience. There will be seasons of life where we will naturally not be in line with the will of the Lord. Stop. Change your mind to change your life. Ask God for forgiveness and then get ready for him. It is this grace through Peter that we see in complete opposition to the life of Judas. You see, there will be two characters mentioned here in Acts chapter 1. One will deny Christ three times, but will repent and will receive the grace and forgiveness of Christ and be restored and thrive in ministry. The other one will harden his heart, will turn bitter will allow every aspect of his being to be succumbed to Satan. And instead of being a disciple of Christ, he will be an apostate. Grace is truly a very life-changing, powerful thing. And that is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, that God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you may abound in every good work. Do not harden your heart. Receive his grace and change your life. It is within this setting that Luke the historian reminds us in verse 14 that all of these men were in one accord. They were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. 
that Luke details to us the intentionality of their time together. That he gives here an historical account of this initial group of followers that began Christ's church. Both his physical family and his faith family. Now it should be significant to us that the first thing these 120 individuals did as a faith family, even before Pentecost, was that they devoted their time together to prayer. It will be this first of 36 separate instances in the book of Acts that gives us evidence that continual prayer was at the epicenter of the early church. That a Christ follower in the book of Acts is an individual who is constant, dependent, and expectant in regard to their prayer life. That they as a way of life will keep on keeping on in talking to the Lord. Can I tell you this is very rare even in our day? In fact, I read an article this week from Pew Research that said 68% of all Christians admit to praying daily. Now let me ask you this question. You may be praying daily, but are you praying expectantly? You say, well, what's the difference? You see, one can be a, a means of religion. What well, can be a means of, of almost a pattern of a way of life, but really not with the intention of obedience or intimacy with God, but just as a means to appease God. That there's this aspect of your relationship that is not intimate or intentional. It's just formal. It's just something you do to bless the food so we don't get indigestion or run into some vegetables that we don't want, right? Are you praying daily? But are you praying expectantly? Are you praying? You ready for this? Knowing with the conviction that God hears. That God is not too busy. That though God in his grandeur oversees all things, for the psalmist says he stands in the heavens and does as he pleases. Though he has the capacity to, to maintain and to thrive the entire universe, he cares what's going on in your world. That there's this dichotomy of God that he's unlike any other. That when you talk to him, is there an expectation that he is hearing? Is there also then from the word, knowing that your requests are heard by God and will be handled by God because they're within the will of God. That's why I always encourage you to open your Bible when you pray. And that from the scriptures, from, the, from your reading, from your study, then begin to pray to the Lord and allow him to talk to you and then you to talk to him. Knowing that he hears, knowing that he can handle whatever it is and knowing that he's going to bless it. Knowing that within God's confine that you've now begged God to remove any small gods in your life. To crush these idols. Lord, have your way. Have your way in me. Whatever it is, Lord, that you want in my life, take it. Bless it. Knowing, are you ready for this? Expecting that God, whatever you're working in me, it is ultimately going to be for my good and for your glory. Lord, even though I don't understand, even though this doesn't make sense, even though this is frustrating, can I tell you that he knows that it's frustrating to you? Why don't you just tell him? <laughs> Lord, I know this is frustrating. I know this is hard. I know this isn't what I want. But you know what? What I truly want is what you want. Have your way in me. And can I tell you, you never know who's watching. You never know the impact that you can have. I'm so grateful to God to have this heritage in my life of a mom and dad who would pray for me. A mom and dad that I would see praying for my family. 
that I could hear praying for me. That I would in times of blessing and in times of hardship would put their arm around me and say, I'm praying for you. It's the most powerful thing you can do for your home. Now, Brent and I have this privilege of emulating this to our family. <laughs> we, we, we had a guest over on Friday night. So we were getting ready for a football game on Saturday. And this guest, he's a teammate of majors. And so his, his brother plays on the high school team. And they, they were playing outside the state of Oklahoma. They played a team from Arkansas. And so he was kind of hanging out with us. And so we're kind of going around the table, kind of sharing what's going on. And my six-year-old, Tate, all of a sudden says, Hey, guys, did you know Dad talks to himself a lot? I thought, well, this is so random. What did the... He says, yeah. He said, I see him talking to himself a lot. He sings in the shower too. You know, it's just kind of like, well, hey. And then I began to think of, what, what, Tate, what are you talking about? And he saw me pray. And I said, Tate, did you know who I'm talking to? He said, yeah, yourself. <laughs> I said, no, T, I'm talking to God. And can I tell you that God wants to talk to you. He does. He does. First things first. This early church, they devoted themselves to continual, expectant prayer. It was Oswald Chambers, the great theologian of old, who said it well when he says, prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Prayer is the groundwork for Christ's work. And so as we get to work, and as we head to work, and as we do his work, may we pray to a God who hears, who can handle it, who's going to bless it, and who's going to take whatever it is for our good and for his glory. First things first. And so it is, they gather together, and they devoted themselves to prayer. Together with, the Bible says in verse 14, the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. You see, the women of this group are more than likely the spouses of the apostles and their families. They, they would have witnessed the ministry of Jesus. They would have seen or knew of his crucifixion. Additionally, Luke says Mary was here now, I'll remind you in John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was entrusted to the apostle John by Christ on the cross. Please know that John's being faithful to the task in which his king entrusted them. Now, something else interesting is that verse 14 is the last mention of Mary in the entire New Testament. I find it fitting that her last historical event is actually worshiping and praising and praying to Jesus and his, or with his disciples after his ascension. They're not worshiping her. They're not praising her. They're not lifting up her. No, she's in with them. She's worshiping Christ with them. What a legacy. What a work of transforming grace. You say, what do you mean by that? You see, according to Max, Mark chapter 6, verse 3, Jesus had sisters and four earthly half-brothers, James and Judas, and Joseph, and Simon. And initially, these earthly siblings were confused. They were unbelieving in his ministry. You ever had any fam family member that's gone such a way? 
I mean, all of us have that crazy uncle, do we not? All of us have that second cousin. All of us have people, even inside our own homes, people that we love, people that we do life with, that they're just not convinced. They're confused. They're unbelieving. One of the greatest men in my life was my granddad. And my granddad was this amazing individual who the Lord blessed, even though he wanted nothing to do with the Lord. You ever known someone like that? So my granddad had his first radio show in South Texas at 14. He was an entrepreneur in every way. He, he graduated high school there in Corpus Christi, Texas in May in 1945. Upon graduation, he immediately joined the Navy. Him and his brother lied about their age, and they were shipped, headed to the Pacific. It was within their training that the Japanese surrendered. My granddad, in telling this story, always said, yep. He said, once the Japanese heard the Brooks boys were in the fight, they, they surrendered. But it would be this man that God would use, and he would head back to Oklahoma, never even been here, and randomly he was in a downtown store, headed to a taxi, or got into a taxi, headed to a, a work appointment, and my meemaw was in the exact same cab. And they would begin a conversation that would lead to a marriage of over 50 years. And my granddad was one of the most generous men I've ever met in my life. We'd go to a restaurant when I was a kid and he'd bring the waitress over and say, hey, this side apple pie, this side chocolate pie. And he would buy dessert for the entire restaurant. Unbeliever, but just generous, kind, and wanted nothing to do with Christ. Nothing. And so he saw me grow up. And we'd go for walks and talks. And even at an early age, I'd say, Grandpa, why, why don't you love Jesus? Why aren't you going to church? Why aren't you, all of these other things. And, you know, he'd always give these answers of, hey, I got, I got so much things to do. I've got all these businesses. And uh, some of that was partly true. He really did. But he wasn't keeping first things first. He wasn't keeping the main thing the main thing. And so wouldn't you know it, at the end of his life, 83 years old, God began to day by day, month by month, year by year, take things from my granddad. Physical strength, the ability to retain knowledge. He had macular degeneration, so this man that could literally see the future couldn't even see across the room. And so I was home from college, and the Lord had just called me into ministry, and he had met Brenda and knew, man, something miraculous happened here for someone like that to be with you. And we were doing something that we've done a thousand times before. We were watching a football game in his living room. And I was sitting in the middle of the living room, and my granddad was sitting in his recliner. Don't grandpas and granddads always have their recliner, you know? And my dad was to my left, and it was a random commercial. My granddad looked over to me and said, Maddie, can you tell me about Jesus one more time? And so for the next 30 minutes, we talked about the goodness of the Lord, the truth of his resurrection. That he's a God like any other God. That where all other religions say that you must bleed for God, that no, the gospel says that God bled for us, that it was impossible for us to work our way, regardless of how successful, regardless of the, the intentional mind, but yet it's in the foolishness of God that we accept these things. That Jesus says, in order to have life, you must give your life. In order for you to truly live, you must die. But that if you give your life to Christ, 
he will give his life to you. And though my granddad was blind, he accepted Christ right there in his living room and could see for the first time in his life. Do not give up on those who God places before you. Do not stop praying, stop sharing, stop being faithful to those who no one else says they'll never believe. They'll never be changed. See Christ's own family. His sisters, his brothers wanted nothing to do with him. But yet, after seeing the resurrected Christ, believed, were instantly changed, and were actively part of following him. In fact, did you realize that two of these brothers, both James and Judas, would write letters in the New Testament, James and Jude? In fact, James, the oldest brother of Jesus, begins his letter in James 1.1 with arguably the greatest affirmation of the deity of Jesus in the entire New Testament. It's literally Jesus Christ who is God and Lord. He is high and above. He's the king of the universe, but yet he's also my Lord. His life was never the same. In fact, after the resurrection, it would be James, who was one of the first Christ followers mentioned in the book of Acts. He would be a prominent elder in the church of Jerusalem. He was a close friend of Paul's. James was such a prayer warrior that traditionally he was nicknamed Camel Knees because as a way of life, he was fully dependent upon the risen Christ through him. In fact, did you realize that in the, the epistle of James, he references the Sermon on the Mount 16 separate times? How in the world can a man go from adamantly denying Christ to now wholeheartedly following Christ? To now allowing the truths of Christ to free him in all aspects of his life? So much so that inspired by the Holy Spirit, literally, he mentions the teachings of Jesus 16 separate times. Without question, the belief in the risen Christ truly does change everything. May we do first things first. May we expectantly pray. May we follow God's word. Because there will be people in life that God will bring us that need him most. There will be people in life who will claim to be what they are not. And that is why Luke details to us now the vacancy of the apostasy given by Judas. He says in verses 15 through 20, In those days, Peter stood up among the brethren. The company of persons uh, was about 120. And said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and allotted to share in his ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in his own language, Akadelma, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Now I want to give you two very quick observations from verses 15 through 20. Number one, know who's leading. Peter, the Bible says. Peter, though he denied Christ in the Gospels, has now been fully restored. He's about to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and the world will never be the same. He is without question the spokesperson now of the apostles. And he addresses this assembly of about 120 believers. And he reminds them in verse 16 
from the Old Testament scriptures that though the rebellion of Judas shocked them, it did not surprise at all the triune God. Now, something else interesting about this number of 120. Rabbinic tradition required that 120 members be the minimum requirement for one who would call themselves a local Sanhedrin. So please know that these groups of followers who Jesus said specifically to reach your Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, if they were going to reach Jews who were far from Christ, notice that they were using in complete alignment these restrictions by these Jews as a means to point people to Christ. Now, I say also, at the time uh, that this happened, historians tell us that there were literally, for every one Christ follower of these 120, there were 30,000 Jews at the time of Acts. This was a small, small start that God would use to create an impact that would change the world. Can I tell you that God, throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, always has a way of making big out of something small? May I use it as a means to encourage you in your life and what God has entrusted with you, your small groups and Sunday school groups, your 365 groups, that this church, which is about to be over 5,000 here pretty quick, started as a small, faithful group. They were one of 30,000 Jews in and amongst them. But God would take this small start and make a big impact. Now, secondly, Judas, in any sense, did not damage God's purposes. Peter references here the Psalms. He specifically quotes Psalm 69, verse 25, and Psalm 109, verse 8. In doing so, he communicates a necessity of Judas' demise and fulfillment of Scripture. It was predicted in the Old Testament. Judas, who became a guide to those who are arrested, arresting Jesus, Luke says in verse 16. Judas is always dead last in any of the disciples. In any list given in the Gospels, he's always dead last. His name means, are you ready for this? Dagger bearer. Bandit. Assassin. Tragically, Judas heard Jesus' teaching. He witnessed his miracles. He was involved in his fellowship, but he did not have saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Judas is not a genuine Christ follower. He was unregenerate, unrepentant, a deceiver. In fact, the Bible says that he was a greedy liar who was posing as even a faithful treasurer of the disciples while stealing money from them. He wasn't full of Christ, but he was filled with Satan. The Bible says in John chapter 13, verse 27, Luke chapter 22, verse 3. Now, none of this caught Jesus by despair. Surprise. Jesus knew and anticipated Judas' betrayal in all facets of his ministry. Also, God did not make Judas do these things. But Judas selfishly did exactly what he wanted to do in alignment to God's plan. And so he betrayed Christ. And on his own accord, he became an apostate. Now, sadly, Judas was a pawn and tool of Satan. He would seal his perilous fate in verses 17 and 18. It's actually rather graphic. You can read that in your own time. But my point is, is that 
He had everything at his disposal to be exactly who God made him to be in Christ. But instead of giving his life to these first things, he gave his life to other things. And can I tell you that God in his graciousness will do exactly that? That if you desire more of God to find him, to know him, to seek him, to love him, God will give all of himself to you. But if you desire other things, God will give you over to those things. See Romans 1. And so tragically, Judas not giving his life over to these first things, come to find out he wasn't following Christ in anything. May we be on guard. May we be humbly aware of our own sinfulness and fallenness. May we also adamantly love and care for one another, even those right around us in our Sunday school and small groups. May we prayerfully give our lives to first things first. And so these apostles took the initiative upon themselves based upon the Spirit of the Lord. The work must go on. The mission of Christ is ongoing. And so in Luke, or in Acts chapter 1, 21 and 22, Luke details to us the apostles' prayer-filled qualifications for Judas' replacement. One, the man had to have been an eyewitness to the complete ministry of Jesus from his baptism to his ascension. That's over three years, by the way. Furthermore, they also had to personally witness the risen Christ. So they go through these qualifications in the 120 that the Lord has blessed them with, and look at verse 23. And they put forward two, two individuals, Joseph called Barsabas, who also was called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen. So they took him to a place of ministry and apostleship from which Judas had turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. They fervently sought the Lord in prayer. They counseled with one another. And of the 120, they had a whopping two candidates. We actually know very little about these men at all. Besides one, they, they met the minimum qualifications. They also loved and followed Jesus. Joseph's full name means son of the Sabbath. Tradition states that he was heavily involved in mission work throughout the region. Matthias, his name means gift of God. He may have later had a strategic ministry to Ethiopia. That's about it. But look at verse 26. I want to talk a little bit in conclusion about the process that these men went to make this decision. I mean, in keeping first things first, how do you know God's will for your life? How do you know what it is that God wants you to do? What decision you need to make? What, what plans you need to fill your calendar with? What do you need to spend your money and resources on? How do you know these things? How do we make this decision? These disciples had a choice. They could have waited till Paul. No. The work must be done now. It's ongoing. So how do they go about and make this decision? And so it's with this in mind, they collectively, upon a conclusion of time, with a passionate, heart-wrenching, God-seeking prayer, they intentionally casted lots. 
They assigned lots is the point here. Now, can I remind you that at the time of Acts 1.26, this is actually an Old Testament custom that had been a method of determining God's will. It was a means in which they would put stones into a jar, and they would shake this jar, and whichever stone fell out first, that was the stone that was taken. That was the name that was chosen. It was a means in which the sovereign God in the Old Testament would use to affirm his will. Now, I'll also remind you that this practice is never mentioned again in the, in the New Testament. That once the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles, they are solely to depend upon the Lord. But I'll also state that notice even when Matthias was chosen, there was no record at all from a rebuttal from Joseph. That this was a common practice among God's people. That this was a way to discern his will. So what are we to do? How do we know God's will for our life? We have to, just like these disciples, we have to prayerfully look to God's concealed will through the lens of his revealed will. That we have to expectantly pray and ask the Lord. We have to specifically ask them, is this what you want me to do, God? Is this in alignment with your scriptures? Is this for your glory? We are then to follow God's word as we keep things first. We are then to then seek wise counsel. These men reasoned together. These men came to this conclusion together. This was a consensus to a synergy of praying and following God's word that led to this decision. They then had to act. They had to take a step of faith. And notice the beautiful unity here of this direction. Matthias is chosen. There's no unrest. There's no rebellion. There's no review committee. Joseph doesn't say a thing. He just welcomes his brother and the Lord into this role. In like manner, God wants you to have such clarity. As you continue to start something small and expect a big impact, whatever it is in your life, as we keep first things first, this is the pattern in which we are to follow, that we are to expectantly pray, that we are to follow God's word, that we are to seek wise counsel, other Christ followers, who from the word can instruct us and encourage us, challenge us, inspire us. We are then to act, to take a step of faith. The impetus in the New Testament is not discovering God's will. The impetus in the New Testament is doing God's will. We are to be men and women, people of faith. And as God makes our faith sight, may he take something small and may he have a big, big impact. May we, in doing so, may we keep first things first. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe to hear other messages. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us online at fbcba.org. Thank you for listening to our podcast, and always remember, you are loved.